in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome where, welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host from Spokane, Washington, Brian Fry. How you doing, Brian? I'm doing well. Good evening, everyone. Brian, I'm pretty excited today. Do you know why? I do know why, but I have insider information, too. Go ahead, spill the beans. Why am I excited? Oh, we are excited to uh, welcome in a new podcaster, a new co-host with us. Do you want to introduce yourself? What's going on, everybody? How's it going? My name is Devin. Uh, happy to be here. I am. I'm so excited. I got to see some fresh faces, and I love doing this. Uh, it's really a passion. So I'm just, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you guys so much. I'm honored uh, to be a part of this team. It's really awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. And so as we go here into the new year, you're going to hear more from Devin. You're going to hear changing rotation of various hosts. So. Uh, we're hoping that that uh, keeps the show fresh, fun, and uh, hopefully gets our release schedule up so that we can become more regular again. So, Because nothing's worse than being irregular, either in the bathroom or in podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Insert, uh, insert product placement here. Citrusel. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Now, uh, before we get going, quick warm-up. What's the last movie you saw? Devin, why don't you tell us what the last movie you saw was? Oh, geez. Uh, the last movie I watched was Marauder on Netflix. All right. How was it? Uh, it honestly, so far, I've been uh, as far as I've seen so far, because I, I did fall asleep, unfortunately. Mm. Glowing endorsement. Uh, <laughs> it was my nighttime movie. Yeah, it was uh, so far um, very well, very well done so far. It's it's about a he- it's a heist movie. It's your standard heist movie. But uh, I, I got to say, it's a lot gorier than what you would expect from a heist movie. There's a lot of a lot of uh, blood and it's intense. It's very intense. Well, if you're looking for something to help you fall asleep, that sounds great. <laughs> it's, it's how I decompress at night. <laughs> and Brian, I'm pretty sure I know which movie you're going to come at me with because you've been uh, championing this movie for a solid week now. But uh, Brian, what's the last movie I, you saw? It was uh, Christopher Nolan's new movie, Tenet. Uh, it was fantastic. I have been beating everyone over the head with it. Like, watch this movie. That man is is an artist. Uh, I I know Tim Burton had a quote saying that uh, that movies are ninety nine percent bureaucracy and one percent art. But man, I I I don't feel that way when I watch one of Christopher Nolan's. And you can say you know it's a simple effect or something like that when it comes to some of the the stuff he uses. But man, nobody else has done it, and it it looks really cool when he does it, so call me hooked. And for me, the last movie that I saw was Being John Malkovich. I had never seen it before, and uh, I got into it, and it's trippy. There's nothing like it, really. It's it's uh, very unique, uh, dark, but uh, it's a very interesting time. I would recommend it just by virtue of it's a, it's extremely unique. Nice. 
Today, what movie are we going to do today, Brian? Uh, today, we're going to be doing The Nightmare Before Christmas. My wife and I had a grand argument about whether or not it's a Halloween or a Christmas movie earlier today. Uh, <laughs> the debate is real. Weigh in on Facebook. Uh, let us know what you guys think when we get this guy posted. I'm firmly on the Christmas bandwagon on this one. I know the director said it was Halloween, but I tell you what, I think to each their own. And uh, I, I like to get a little uh, creepy on my holidays. Yes is the answer. Yes. Yes. You can watch it in October, November, or December if you'd like to. And you can even watch it in the middle of July if it just pleases you. If that uh, gives you the uh, warm and fuzzy feelings inside. Absolutely. We've had one Christmas, yes. But what about second Christmas? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So as Brian mentioned, we're doing The Nightmare Before Christmas. This movie comes out in 1993. It grosses $50 million. It places it 24th on the box office that year. It comes in behind Last Action Hero and ahead of The Three Musketeers. And if you want to hear the podcast on The Three Musketeers, do check out the Retro Movies Roundtables episode on The Three Musketeers. Brian's is on that one, as well as Ryan Help from the Science or Something podcast. Uh, it's actually one of our top 10 downloaders, so it's a, it's a good time. So Three Musketeers is out there. And the number one movie from 1993 was Jurassic Park. And as we slowly cover every movie ever made, we have covered Jurassic Park this year as well. So also check that one out. It is a great listen and a fun movie to watch. Back to Nightmare Before Christmas, though. 1993, IMDb gives this movie an 8.0. And the critics of Rotten Tomatoes give this a 95%. The audience score is a 91%. It gets the Academy Awards winner for best visual effects it is the golden globes awards nominee for best original score going to danny elfman it is a hugo award winner for best dramatic presentation and a saturn award winner for best fantasy film and best musical score by danny elfman Devin, have you seen this movie before and what was your expectation coming back to it now if so so yes i have seen this movie uh uh, probably about 113 times i gotta say (laughs) uh it is it's an all-time classic in my book it's like you said you could watch it in july you could watch it in november december whatever it's one of those movies you come across on tv you're not going to turn it off it's a classic uh and you you mentioned danny elfman uh and i gotta say doing my research on on him has been extremely interesting uh along with the rest of the cast on here but uh my my views on this movie it set the bar i feel like we have movies previous to this but this one this one sticks better than the others, I should say. Yeah, and so you uh, never get too far away from this one, it sounds like. This this one's always in your rotation, so. Oh, for sure. Brian, what about you? Had you seen this one before? If so, what was it like coming back to it now? Oh, absolutely. I saw this in theaters uh, when it was released, and I think I've got probably at least two different copies of it uh, in terms of DVD and Blu-ray. This movie's fantastic. Like you said, it's, it is a classic. I actually allowed myself a little separation from it where I hadn't watched it in several years and came back to it for the podcast. And, uh, you know, that's worth doing every once in a while too, because I, there were parts of it. I was like, wow, I really did. I legitimately did not remember that. And that kind of makes it like a fun rewatch to, to feel like you're still getting some new content. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is one of those ones where I admittedly have been away from it for a while. I saw it in theaters. Uh, my parents owned the VHS of it, and I did watch it, usually kind of in that Novemberish time, oddly enough, so right between you and uh, your wife's debate period, Fry. Yeah, split the difference. Yeah, I, I am, yeah. So, But 
I really enjoyed it as a kid. And you know, one of the funny things is having stepped away from it and coming back to it now, I, uh, I really do enjoy it. And in fact, I'd say there's a lot there for adults to enjoy. And it's definitely a two-level movie, for sure. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I, I got to give any movie that does that a lot of credit. So this is long before Pixar had tapped into that formula. And so I really think there's a lot here for children as well as for adults. And I, I know all ages who seem to be able to enjoy this one. And so it's it's a really fun one to come back to. And I'm, I don't think I will go so long without seeing it again because I did pick it up. I did purchase it this time. And I could see this one being one that I want to return to frequently. So... So uh, just a quick piece of trivia uh, talking about coming back to it and one for the children and one for the adults. As we see today in many movies, a lot of these movies are being remade, uh, mostly live action. And our our childhood movies that we saw that, you know, they're coming back. And uh, they actually in 2001, they Disney, uh, they they considered doing a sequel to this movie. But they wanted to do it in full animation. Hmm. Tim Burton said, no, it will not. He wanted to use the stop motion uh, and Disney wanted to use a computer animation. And uh, Tim Burton said, nope, going to squash the whole idea. So we almost had a sequel to uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas, but did not happen. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's good to be protective of certain things. Sometimes better. They're better off to stand on their own. Now, I think it's so often contractually written in that you need to create a sequel or what is your plan for four movies or something like that. But uh, I'm glad to know that that didn't happen at this point and that Tim Burton protected that. So, mm-hmm. Agreed. So as we go forward, we are going to be spoiling this movie. So we will be back after this and we will spoil the movie. It's your 44th president, Barack Obama. Now that I'm no longer president, I enjoy watching movies. Listen to podcasts occasionally. While having a drink with one of those little tiny yellow umbrellas in it. Uh, Michelle turned me on to one of her favorite podcasts, The Retro Movie Roundtable. I love it too. I'm here today to tell you this great podcast needs our help. We need to come together and go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get to a podcast and give a rating and review. Then after that, Give it maybe one of those thumbs up on Facebook. If you want, you can even send an email to Retro Movie Roundtable Yahoo.com. America, with your participation, we can take this great podcast to new heights we never thought possible. Can we build a show that I love a better tomorrow? Yes, we can. I'm Barack Obama. Uh, I endorse this message. Well, we're back, and this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. So, Brian, for those who haven't seen The Nightmare Before Christmas since 1993, you want to refresh people's memories. Jack Skellington came off yet another amazing Halloween. At least everybody's telling him that. He's actually pretty down because he is not into the same old, same old of Halloween any longer. So he tries his best to put on a great face in front of the troops as he walks into the woods to ponder what he could be doing differently in his life to make it more interesting. Lo and behold, he comes upon a tree that has a tree etched into it, a Christmas tree, in fact. And that Christmas tree door leads him to the world of Christmas, Christmas land to be exact. Uh, Once there, he is fascinated by lights, by snow, by everyone being happy. And he has an idea. What makes this place so different and so amazing and how can he use it to spice up his own Halloween land? So he goes back home 
sets up his uh, experiment shop, starts doing all sorts of nifty things until the epiphany hits where he says, I will, in fact, make Christmas. So as he gives everyone their jobs, his best friend and future love interest comes to him with a bad omen, bad portents of this being the wrong thing to do and that they should stick to what they know and that he should not be doing it. However, this falls on deaf ears as he continues to give out chores to all of his fellow Halloween landers, uh, including one to go kidnap the Santa Claus. Once three misfit Halloween children go uh, kidnap the guy after accidentally kidnapping the Easter bunny, he begins to make Christmas with all of his troops helping along. He begins his quest with uh, having his evil mad scientist make him some flying skeleton dogs or reindeer. And once all the presents are prepared, they fly off to be delivered. These are shrunken heads. These are ducks with bullet holes in them. These are ghostly dolls that chase after children. And as the calls start coming in of these misfit toys finding their way into innocent hands, they shoot Jack down, basically fulfilling Sally's prophecy of uh, negative uh, doom for him and his pursuits. He realizes the error of his ways, comes home to save Sally and the Santa Claus from Mr. Oogie Boogie Man and basically uh, apologizes to Santa. Santa sets all right in Christmas land and they go on about having yet another fantastic Halloween. However, as one little bonus, they do get snow. And Sally and Jack are happy ever after. Perfect. Nailed it. True. I heard there was an extended outtake that uh, actually has them with a child. I don't want to go into how that's possible considering she's full of leaves and he is in fact a skeleton, but child nonetheless. Yeah. And uh, so Jack, the pumpkin King leaving Halloween town for Christmas. And that's like Michael Jordan leaving to play baseball. Like (laughs) what was he thinking? I mean, it's, it's funny that, uh, he has this quarter life or half life crisis that he wants to go do this. I mean, it's kind of funny. He's so good at something, but he's bored being really awesome at it. It's interesting here. This, this main character is kind of the villain. He ends up kidnapping Santa Claus. He ends up stealing Christmas and that's, he's kind of the antagonist. That's an unusual thing for an animated movie to do. And that's kind of an unusual thing for a main character to do. And that right off the bat is, really unique to the story am i often labeling him as the bad guy of the movie that's a that's a great way of looking at it i never you know all the times i've seen this movie i've never considered that point of view how he is actually the villain in this whole thing i mean he means well but i mean he kidnapped santa claus is not nice stuff (laughs) a little bit i guess yeah that's impressive wow I, I don't know if it would it be uh, like obviously kidnapping Santa Claus was the point. However, his instructions specifically were to treat him with care and comfort. I believe it was because the uh, Oogie Boogie Man's uh, three little hellions that went to go get him led to the uh, poor treatment of Santa Claus. So maybe not all on him because you still had the greater antagonist of Oogie Boogie. No, no, it's true. But I mean, there's, there's to some degree of uh, those aren't the most responsible people to leave him with. That's kind of like saying, like, here, Mike Tyson, baby, sit my child. That's true. <laughs> 
We should talk about uh, we should talk about Oogie Boogie and uh, and some of the other cast members of this movie too. Absolutely. So, what are some of the fun characters that that you know come to your mind, uh, Devin? You've you've enjoyed this one so many times. I have, yes. So uh, after doing my actual research on this movie, which again, I, this I'm I'm happy to be here because I've never. I've never taken the depth uh, that I have till now into this movie uh, other than just being a fan. Let's talk about Danny Elfman for starters. That guy. Wow. Uh, (laughs) Danny Elfman was actually the vocals during all of Jack Skellington's singing in that movie. Jack Skellington's voice was actually another actor, but during all the singing scenes in that movie was actually played by Danny Elfman who also led the entire soundtrack uh, for this movie. He was the composer. He's the music department of this movie was actually Danny Elfman himself. Catherine O'Hare, big popular name right now who did uh, just that show Shit's Creek, which is great. Uh, I know we don't do shows, but I got to sit here and tell you, if you like shows, go ahead and watch that show. It's a great one. Uh, Catherine O'Hare played Sally. Did not know that. Fantastic job. Uh, she's famous for a lot of things. Uh, one movie specifically, which leads to another movie that is on here. Another, I'm sorry, another actor. She was in uh, Beetlejuice. Her and Glenn Shaddix. Glenn Shaddix was uh, one of the other one of the other actors that were on this movie. He played the mayor in The Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, the voiceover, obviously. Uh, he was also in Beetlejuice with Catherine O'Hare. Unfortunately, he passed away uh, in 2010. And one of the biggest shockers for me uh, doing my research on this, we talked about those three little uh, gremlins that went to steal Santa Claus, Locke, Stock, and Barrel, uh, if you recall. Take a guess who played Locke. Uh, that is Paul Rubens. That's Pee Wee Herman. That is Pee Wee Herman played <laughs> Locke. Yeah, crazy. That was a really cool, uh, fun little fact. Chris Sarandon actually played uh, the voice for jack skellington during this movie he's he's pretty famous for fright night which is another very popular movie he was in uh teenage mutant ninja turtles princess bride princess bride yeah it was it was really great this is one of the things that i love that i'm involved in now i get to see all these things that i really honestly never uh never paid attention to prior to doing things like this is uh it's really really interesting so fry if you think about maybe jack as maybe this kind of antagonist character is does that make sally kind of the hero of this thing She's the one who kind of questions this whole identity crisis that Jack is having. And she's the only person in Halloween land that is, in fact, a prisoner herself. So I can definitely see some parallels to not wanting to lock up the Santa Claus because she herself has been locked up so much. I'd say she's more of the conscience, which can make her a protagonist, absolutely. Uh, But she's more what Jack needs to be listening to as opposed to, like you said, he's having this existential crisis of uh, what am I doing? This is same old, same old is not, you know, the status quo isn't cutting it for me anymore, but you know, he's got, he's got the possibility of romance, which has not occurred to him yet. And once that happens, I think that is the part of the turning point in what makes him back to being a more protagonist-y person. So if Michael Jordan goes to play his baseball as Jack Skellington leaving for Christmas, is Sally kind of like the guy from Nike being like, are you sure, Michael? Are you sure you want to do this? You're really good at basketball. Listen, if you come back to basketball, I will pay you so much money that you can poorly run your own basketball team. <laughs> yes. Um but I, I also like how uh, Christmas Town is lost on Halloween Town. I, I really enjoy how these characters are, live in Halloween 100% of the time. 
Like they, they eat, live, sleep, and breathe Halloween. They live for scaring, and that's what they do. And f- Christmas is a very foreign thing to them. Devin, wasn't that kind of one of the more interesting things that kind of was an ongoing theme throughout this movie? They just never could wrap their heads around it. Yes. Yeah. It was. Uh, it, it, I, I felt like it had a lot of uh, had a lot of deep meaning. Uh, you can really apply a lot of the ideologies that you find in this movie to today's situation, or just you know the normal world that we live in today. You have some foreign character coming to a new place that's different, and it's the you know trying to acquire those things out of that new place and bring it back to your own, and the difficulties that you go through trying to do it is, uh, I think, was kind of an underlying message, you know. So uh, adapting new ways is, is kind of what I found in that, uh, or adapting to new lifestyles or things like that, becoming more fluid. I think it was, uh, I think it was well done, honestly. Yeah, Brian, what do you think about the, these two worlds, Halloween world versus Christmas world, or Christmas town? Sorry, they definitely. I mean, they su- they sum it up. You know, it's definitely clearly a place of fright and a place of uh, jolly. Uh, I'm very curious to see what St. Patrick's Day land would be. That's where I would live. But, (laughs) (laughs) uh, you know, obviously the the Easter Bunny was there. So we know a little bit about what's going on in that spot. But, uh, yeah, I mean, in the way that children's nursery rhymes are woven and remembered, I believe that they did a good job setting that up in what these lands look like. Yeah, I just like how these two worlds collide. I think it's funny to see this like haunting snake like eat a Christmas tree. I think it's funny to see these ghoulish characters like like you said a uh, vampire duck with bullet holes in it. Like you know, like it brings the Halloween town such joy. Like they think they're making somebody happy. They're like, well, this is going to be great. Like you know, is it a is it a metal spike in a box? <laughs> like, yeah. like, and they're like. Uh, they just don't understand what brings the happiness and worth to people. They, in a weird way, they see that it makes people happy. And they're like, "Sure, cool, let's try, it. let's try that out. That looks fun." But they have no conceivable clue for how to do it. And that's just, uh, to me, as an adult coming back to it, that just continues to be funny over and over. That's where that's where most of the humor is to be mined in these two worlds, like smashing together. So yeah. Just speaking as someone who has a statue in his living room that could be construed as a four foot tall slender man, I would have dug any of these presents for, for Christmas. So I like I'm all for it. Uh, I was like, that's cool. I'd take one. And if they're actually alive, that's even better. Like, oh, do you have a dog? Yeah, I do. But, you know, my flying Dracula bat is way cooler. Now, uh, Devin, originally in the movie Oogie Boogie Man was uh, going to be disguised as Finkelstein or you know the, the mad scientist who holds Sally prisoner and right. um, he was going to be jealous of Sally choosing Jack over him like he was kind of making her for love interest as opposed to mm. father daughter kind of thing that uh, would have been a very different dynamic they changed it in the end where he's more of a guardian kind of figure of like your mind how do we, how do you fall on that? Are you glad they made that change or which, what would, it, what would that be like to you to change it? I feel like that was a, that was a good change. Uh, in, in the, the age group that they were, uh, they were aiming at for this movie for entertainment wise. I feel like the story they went with was a little bit easier to take in <laughs> almost like a dad figure, you know, versus a, a jealous boyfriend. Mm hmm. Um, or a jealous, I hate to say the word owner, but, uh, you know, cause we don't own people, but, uh, yeah, they definitely chose the right way for this for sure. There was definitely a sense of like your mind. Yeah. Like there was a, there was, there oh, was yeah. A, yeah, it was ownership to a weird way. She, she wasn't free to go where she wanted. No, definitely not. 
she was definitely a, a prisoner in her own way. Uh, like we talked about before, it's, <laughs> there's really no way to cut it. She was a prisoner in Halloween town, <laughs> the worst place you could be. They kind of turn it into a casual joke though, too, of just like a, a teenager kind of is irritated with their parents of just like, Oh, you never let me go out and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, if you're a teenager and you're frustrated with your parents, just give slip them some deadly nightshade. Yeah, or, you know, shave your arm off while they're trying to hold your wrist, one or the other. <laughs> that was one of the things that I had forgotten about. It's like, he's like, oh, I'm never going to let you poison me again. And he's got like a hot water bottle on his metal head <laughs> for, I guess, the hangover it gave him. And I'm just like, this is hilarious, man. Like, I can't get over this. And that went right over my head as a kid. So I'm sure that they're really happily, oh, yeah. le- happy legally that children didn't go home and were like, yeah, poison our parents. <laughs> Oh my God, could you imagine? Now, Devin, you said you've seen this so many times over the years. How has it evolved as you watched it as a child? Like, because like when you watched it when you were young, I'm sure you watched it in a certain way. What was it you enjoyed about it as a child? And what is it that you kind of are changing how you're enjoying it as you've gotten older? What keeps you coming back to it? So, like I said earlier, a lot of, and, and this goes for a lot of the movies that uh, that you rewatch as an adult uh, that you grew up with. A lot of the underlying messages you don't you don't realize when you're a kid. You know, you're sitting there, you're watching this movie, and essentially, it's a love story. You don't take that into account when you're you know young and you're you're just you're watching Jack Skellington, this awesome character, and he's you know flying through the air and they're shooting him out of the sky, and you know it's all the the, the basics to any movie that a child would find interesting. Uh, you know, small action. It's animated. Obviously, it's a key factor. But now that I sit back and I watch it as an adult, it's the things like we were talking about those underlying messages that the love story between them. You know, the there there was the ownership, the the, the daughter being completely confined to to the laboratory, and she wasn't able to escape. The only way to do it was the one time she you know ripped the stitchings out of her arm and. And she ran away and they found each other and they're in love now. And it's, it's more, uh, I feel sentimental at this point, uh, being an older you know person now and watching this, it's like, you can almost relate to some of that stuff now versus when you're a kid, you're just like, Oh man, they shot him out of the sky. What's going to happen next. It's more, it's definitely, um, a lot deeper. Now you get a lot more out of these movies and I do it all the time with my, I have two, two kids. I have two daughters. Uh, and my wife is a huge, uh, in an old school movie junkie i should say because she she does not get off the old movies new movies are like they're not for her so we do end up watching a lot of these old movies somebody should totally make a show about movies that are at least 10 years or older i mean that would <laughs> I be agree really i agree good. like i mean that would that would be a where could we find something yeah. like that oh my god if any of our listeners know of something um, that we could pass along that would be great yeah. does her <laughs> does her time frame shift as time progresses like do 80s movies count under classics one like oh yeah of course they do 2020s happen and then the 90s will be cool in 10 years from now absolutely okay it all it all falls into the line you know now brian uh devin was kind of going through some of these really fun names as an ensemble though we got a lot of very talented people doing voice work here what are some of the magic for you and both the singing as well as the voice acting here I actually have a kind of a different take on the music on here. I obviously absolutely love it. The musical numbers are great. I have three or four favorites, but uh, one of the things I really wanted to plug as a kind of tandem that if you do decide to watch this movie and you are listening to this podcast, so you like it that much, if you have the chance to pick up the album, the nightmare revisited, 
totally worth it. It is bands doing the songs from this. People like Marilyn Manson, Korn, Rise Against, uh, Amy Lee from Evanescence. It is amazing. It is something I I do listen to a lot. And uh, yeah, I just feel like you have to experience both because, I mean, the score is, you know, I'm not trying to change anything within the movie, but man, some of the takes these these pop culture bands have, have done on these songs is also really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It has a big ripple effect. I mean... I think this movie resonated with an entire, I won't say goth kid necessarily, because I think it goes beyond that. I think it, I think it appealed to the art kids, the goth kids, the outcasts, the the people who might like horror movies. And I feel like there's some, there's something, there's an undertone to this. That's part of that, uh, you know, counter to the mainstream because, you know, these are Halloween guys taking over the mainstream of Christmas and um, they're weird, you know, they're, they're, they're outcast and they're offset, but there's this whole little town where you could totally belong. So if you are pushed out, if, you, if you're not that popular person, then you might fit in Halloween town. I think this is why it has this ripple effect to so many people. I don't know if you guys have known that to be true, but this movie has a special place in its heart for a certain uh, demographic of people. Oh, absolutely. It does. It does. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that uh, I, I remember using Tim Burton as an adjective, you know, 20 years ago where you'd say like, oh, uh, how was that show? It was very Tim Burton. You know what I mean? Like it's it was it, it, it was a descriptor <laughs> for exactly what you're talking about, Russ. No, I was just uh, I, I do agree that I feel like um, we can blame Hot Topic, the store Hot Topic for the, for the usage of Jack Skellington uh, for one uh, you know generation of kids. I feel like in the last, I don't know, five years or so, let's say uh, Jack Skellington has become um, a symbol for a certain type of kid. Yeah. And you see a lot of these uh, you see. I've never in my life seen a Jack Skellington sticker on the back window of a car until maybe about five years ago. That one, that's when it became, I feel like he was an icon for that, um, that misled kid that, you know, the outcast, the black sheep. And he's like, Oh, cause he can, you know, that kid can relate to Jack Skellington, you know, kind of how he, you know, perceived everything. And they can, you know, they find that, they find the common ground with him and then hot topic decided they were going to completely blast his face on sweatshirts, backpacks, <laughs> lunch boxes, you know, coffee kit, everything. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I can see it. I, I can understand it. You know, I get it. But, um, yeah, I think that that whole, I like Jack Skellington because I, I feel like I can almost relate to him for the fact that like the, the want to progress, right. Yeah. Like you're always looking to change something. You always want to make things better. I can relate to Jack Skellington and I am not in that generation that's wearing sweatshirts. Would I get him tattooed on me? Yes, I would. I'm guilty. I would do it. I truly feel that he is, he's a good icon for progression. I I have not gotten a tattoo of him. I don't have tattoos, but we have carved him into pumpkin format. So we have done a very lifelike version of a jack-o'-lantern of Jack Skellington. And I hate to say this, one of the years I did like a, the Nirvana squiggly face mouth with the X's on the eyes for my for my pumpkin. Oh, yeah. And Mary did an awesome Jack Skellington that year as well. And someone stole our pumpkins. Not smashed our pumpkins on the sidewalk, which can happen. Someone just flat out took our pumpkins because they were good. And someone was lazy. How many years ago was this? Um, Four or five years ago. 
Okay, so the kid was within between 12 and 15 years old. Yeah. Uh, he was probably wearing a black sweatshirt. Yeah. <laughs> you put a bolo out to get I that mean, kid. <laughs> it, it was flattering, but like it still kind of sucked because it's like it's Halloween night and our pumpkins are gone. And my first thought was like, son of a gun, they smashed your pumpkins on the sidewalk. Hoodlums. And then like I went out in the street and it was just like, there's nothing to clean up. You mean they took the pumpkins? That, that Does kid anybody do eat- that? He took it home and he's like, this pumpkin is awesome. I'm going to, I'm going to in my room. Yeah. And then, and then he went to school and he's just like, look at this pumpkin I did. Carve your own pumpkin. Even if you steal somebody else's idea and just <laughs> mimic my pumpkin and claim it as your own, at least cut that pumpkin out. Don't just take it. Leave a note. Leave a note. A thank you note at least. Yeah. God. Yeah. Hey, I might have, that might have helped. Yeah. You know, leave, leave a couple of candy bars. You know, it's Halloween. You know, it's like the Santa Claus cookies. I want to say that around the time that uh, Nightmare Before Christmas was being heavily commercialized, like you're talking about with the sweatshirts and the watches and neckties and everything, the Hot Topic was cranking out. I swear that's the exact same time when Hot Topic decided to start putting lights inside their stores and. I swear, as soon as Hot Topic lit up, the commercialization of things I loved in childhood really hit full gear. Oh, I agree. Interesting. When I was in high school, Hot Topic was a cave. You went in there and you had to like, you had to like use a flashlight to see what CDs you were thinking about buying and you know whatnot. And as soon as it, oh yeah, it, it, it's like it's like <laughs> it went from that like tool sweatshirts to lights on, Invader Zim. They had a blacklight section. That wasn't sectioned off. <laughs> That's how dark it was. I think they were smart and made it so that you didn't have to like get money from your parents and go buy something without them knowing about it. They made it at least quasi approachable so that you could yes. bring your parents in there and they'd be like, okay. And they might see some stuff they don't like there in the store, but they had at least presented or displayed it in a way that seemed more palatable to the regular bystander. So you could say that's hot topic selling out. I don't know, but um, you know, at least it was, you know. I remember making the joke with a T-shirt, going, "Hey, this is black, right?" Like while it, while while, <laughs> yeah. it, while in the store, and they're like, "Yeah, everything in here is black, man." You don't need lights; they're all black. Everything's black. If you didn't bring your parents, if you didn't bring your parents past the chain wallet section, you were safe. I feel like anything past the chain wallets is where things it gets questionable. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, you, we're starting to get into this is very Tim Burton, but this is an interesting thing. We have two main creators here. We have Tim Burton and we have Henry Selleck. Uh, Devin, did you dive into this relationship of the creation uh, between these two minds? I did not. So I please uh, educate me on this. Okay. So Tim Burton grew up loving Christmas specials like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, as well as his love for Halloween as well. And so he created a three-page poem called The Nightmare Before Christmas, and it was a, you know, he when he was a Disney animator in the 1980s. Burton had the original poem, and he made sketch art, and uh, so he came up with what Jack Skellington and Sally would look like and a number of the other characters in the town, but he then hands this creation off because he's busy doing another project off to another director, Henry Selleck. And everybody says this is Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. It's written on the cover. However, Henry Selleck is the director. He spent more time on the set. Burton was not even present for a lot of the day-to-day execution and the major decisions that a director has to make from minute to minute. So Burton often claimed that he is the owner of the story and it was all his idea uh, and he is. He's the creator of the, the genesis of it all. But he is also quick to point out that Henry Selleck 
is the director of the film and that this wouldn't have happened without him. So popular culture has long accepted this as being Burton, but Selleck really does bring the execution to this. And these are two minds that are very compatible together again. If you go down and look at Henry Selleck's filmography, they work again together on James and the Giant Peach, which is another burton Selleck collaboration. And Coraline, so many people attribute this to Burton, but it's actually Henry Selleck. And he's really good at taking the dark themes that Tim Burton has, and he and he does present it, particularly to children, a lot of the more approachable for children concepts that come from Burton are collaborations there with Henry Selleck. So he strikes that amazing balance of not condescending to children, being able to handle very adult subject matter. Like we talked about, this movie speaks at two levels, and Selleck is the one who's really in charge of telling the story and making those day-to-day decisions of how the characters should look, what, how things should operate. And without the two of them together, you don't really have this. So I think Henry Selleck's underappreciated in this regard, and it's really a collaboration between the two. And they do, uh, Selleck said, Tim Burton and I are from the same planet, maybe even the same neighborhood on the same planet. Wow. And I'll add something to that, because I'm glad you brought up Coraline. Uh, Neil Gaiman wrote the book, Coraline and he's another guy that I'm like he if he and Tim Burton aren't friends they need to be friends because they are in fact from the same planet too yeah and there's these just it's this wonderful thing and I mean you just look at them if you look at a picture of Henry Selleck you look at a picture of Tim Burton these are some unusual cats (laughs) you know I mean all right so I have a question yeah so I have a question let's talk about Henry Selleck for a second would you say that Henry Selleck uh, let me rephrase just explain to me the movie Monkey Bone. Just do that. Just, just explain. Okay, so I love Nightmare Before Christmas. It, 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 it's pinnacle in, in my childhood. It's, it, it's an amazing movie. What happened in Monkey Bone? What happened there? They swang big. They swang big. They, would, they did something that was Beetlejuice-esque, if you really think about it. They just didn't capture the magic of Beetlejuice. The formula is actually pretty similar. This quirky, weird world of this... You know, Monkey Bone wasn't Beetlejuice. It wasn't Michael Keaton. It was the end of Brendan Fraser. I don't know. He put, he continued to peter out for a while. There was like a fourth mummy movie, Journey to the Center of the Earth. It, 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 oh, jeez. It, it was a gradual fade, of both of his hairline and his movie career. Oh, Lord. And as we discussed in a previous uh, podcast, for every alien, there is a legend. That's true. I'll give you that. Oh, fine. He gets a pass for that one. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Selleck actually did a good job of saying it. It's as though Burton laid an egg and then I sat on it and hatched it. it, it he, he wasn't right. involved in the hands-on way. And it was my job to make it look like a Tim Burton film, which is not so different from my own films, he, he admittedly said. So this is a it's, it's just interesting to me that Tim wasn't more intact, but it feels so Tim Burton to Brian's point. It feels Burton. In fact, you could say this is the quintessential Tim Burton thing when you say this is Tim Burton. I mean, obviously there's Edward Scissorhands. There's a lot of other great moments. But oh yeah, when you say Tim Burton, Devin, what pops in your head first? Tim Burton. Uh, Johnny Depp. <laughs> Johnny Depp is the, the person that pops into my head. When I think Tim Burton, I, honestly, the first thing I think about is The Nightmare yeah. Before Christmas. Yeah, I do too. And... Um, and I don't want to take anything away from him because, like I said, he created it. And, again, the visual rendering of what got all the gears turning were him. But I just thought that was very interesting. It shows you that Hollywood um, is always a team sport. And so whenever somebody slaps their name on the front of it, 
there's literally hundreds of people that work below them making decisions and all that stuff. And uh, this is this is Absolutely. this is certainly a case of that. This was over a hundred people working for three years straight on the film. For one second of the film, twelve stop motion moves were made. So that's just one second of the film. There were over a hundred and nine thousand frames that were taken for the film, and one minute of stop film took a week to create. That is crazy. I think that is absolutely fascinating how they storyboarded the entire thing out, how the animators were able to put together all of these extensive figurines and the the stop motion of it. And I mean, this is art in its highest degree. It's such an interesting thing. And, and I think it's fantastic. 100%. I agree. Uh, it definitely makes a huge difference. Uh, I mean, you, keep in mind, we're talking about, you know, the 90s. So uh, when it came to, uh, you know, animation and, uh, and quality of shooting, it was a totally different spectrum of what you're looking at today. Uh, today, they could take an animated movie and make it as, you know, 3D looking as, as, as anyone can imagine. Uh, but back then, it wouldn't have been to the level of we are today. So what they were doing uh, was essentially creating what you see today in animation. They were doing back then with clay. Of course. And of course, yeah, of course. And especially since Jurassic park came out the same year, I mean, this was, these are two great examples of, you know, movies that went that extra mile to, Really, I'm not saying CGI is not art. It totally is. Um, But I do think that there's an engineering aspect that when you add that to the art, it it, there's just something more real about it. There's something more soulful in it. I, you know, no disrespect to CGI folks. So, yeah. Henry Selig and his team of animators began production in July of 91 in San Francisco, utilizing 20 sound stages for the film. And its peak production, they had 20 individual stages where they were simultaneously filming. So each of these sets is a lot larger than you would ever imagine. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But Brian, in terms of the storytelling, in terms of how everything has to come together, the level of detail and the consideration with all these characters, talk about like Selleck and Burden and their contribution to this as the creators. I think that is absolutely fascinating how they storyboarded the entire thing out, how the animators were able to put together all of these extensive figurines and the the stop motion of it. And I mean, this is art in its highest degree. It's such an interesting thing. And, and I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Now in terms of the cinematography, I think there's a pop-up book feeling to this. And like, there's a sense of you've fallen into this thing. It's the clay characters and the characters that you get from that. But also, the, because you're using real models, you get to do something that you don't always get to. Otherwise, you actually get to light it and pan and zoom. And you actually are using real cameras to do real camera techniques. Devin, is, do you feel like that element of going claymation over animation benefits from a cinematic feeling of how like it looks 100 i agree uh it definitely makes a huge difference uh i mean you keep in mind we're talking about you know the 90s so uh, when it came to uh you know animation and uh and quality of shooting it was a totally different spectrum of what you're looking at today Mm -hmm. uh today they could take an animated movie and make it as you know 3d looking as 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 anyone can imagine uh but back then 
it wouldn't have been to the level of we are today. So what they were doing uh, was essentially creating what you see today in animation they were doing back then with clay. Yeah, it's just, uh, Brian, you always champion practical effects over, you know, CGI. By doing clay, you're basically using real lights, real models. And do you feel like that has a quality to this film that makes you appreciate that more? Knowing that you like those special, the, the practical effects. And of course, yeah, of course. And especially since Jurassic Park came out the same year. I mean, this was, these are two great examples of, you know, movies that went that extra mile to really, I'm not saying CGI is not art. It totally is. But I do think that there's an engineering aspect that when you add that to the art, it, it, there's just something more real about it. There's something more soulful in it. I, you know, no disrespect to CGI folks. No, and you're right. I think you're 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 at the doorstep of where computers are about to take over. And honestly, computers are a little bit rough in the mid '90s as they start to become introduced. I mean, like I can think of a, a head getting cut in half and blade, and sitting there going like, "Hmm, that's why terrible." You do, like, yeah, why'd you do that? <laughs> I mean, uh, they had to go through some painful lessons of what not to do. But it's funny you're coming off the heels of where practical effects are about at their pinnacle and they're amazing and uh, to your point jurassic park or nightmare before christmas they're doing some amazing amazing stuff for real and they're really doing it so setting the bar yeah Yeah. so i i think there's a quality that is in that that again i spoke earlier about john malkovich there's nothing like it there's really not a lot like nightmare before christmas there's claymation from the 60s but Devin, am I wrong? Like this is this doesn't feel like your Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer claymation. This feels this is taken to another level. If you were to take a 2020 CGI and mix it with a 1960s claymation, you have the Nightmare Before Christmas. Hmm. Yeah. So, and and they did use computers. So if you think about it, old claymation, they move the the figure, they take a snapshot, they move the figure, they they take a snapshot. But because of what we're talking about, you can pan, you can zoom, you can do all this stuff. But you can't do that while you're moving figures around and hold everything still. So they made, they put the camera like on an arm, like a mechanical arm. And they had computer settings for where they, each frame would be. And they had a, they knew in the scene that the camera was going to swing from the left and move around to the right and zoom in as it does. And it's very cinematic and, and experiential as it does that. The lights were on a sequence timer. And because it takes a week to shoot a minute of this movie, that's, they have to literally go in there and move all these characters and stuff like that. It relies on the camera on a mechanism like that to always know where it is frame by frame by frame and to know so that it's consistent and it doesn't right. seem as jumpy. And that's why there's the roughness of claymation is there, but it's, it's done remarkably smoothly when you really consider it. And the ambition of what the camera's doing, uh, again, wouldn't have been possible in the 60s. It's very impressive, honestly. So technology is helping them a lot. It's, it's, it is, we're not, I guess we said that um, doing it for real matters, but uh, it's the real models and the computers are being used in such a way to support that. So mm. Brian, talk about the atmosphere. Like how does this world feel to you? I, I think that the, can I use bubble gun, bubble gum creepy? Uh, as, describe a, bubble as a gum way creepy. to uh, describe this. <laughs> is that like Rob Zombie's sick bubble it's, gum? It's, like, what is it, that? 
No, it's it's creepy in the way that you understand intellectually watching it that it's trying to be creepy, but it's also not so Rob Zombie creepy that children are running out of the theater screaming. Like it's making it accessible, making your creepiness point without doing it to a, an extent that you're chasing off young audiences. So I, I'm just going to make the phrase bubblegum creepy for, for this specific point I'm trying to make. But anyway, yeah, so so it's just it, – it's 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 creepy. It's eerie. It is, but it is also eerie in a way that it's not scaring out any any demographic off. I get I got the heebie-jeebies off of it. I, I was in, you know, third grade when I saw this movie, and I, I do remember feeling, like, a little bit scared. Like, to your point, I didn't have nightmares over it. It was creepy, certainly. So – but there were things in Halloween Town that, like – it's like, eh, I don't want to spend too long with that guy. Yeah. But in fairness, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm one of those kids that uh, I was a wuss when it came to being scared of things. So, like, I, I would watch Nickelodeon's Are You Afraid of the Dark and be like, this is too much, guys. Oh, the guy with the plunger. Yeah, oh, my God, he gave me nightmares. Yeah. Anyway, Devin, what, what do you feel about the environment here? I mean, you guys, you guys basically read what I was going to say, honestly, <laughs> like it's I, I, when I was when I was younger seeing this movie, uh, it was more that like, you know, oh, my God, he's going to get shot down for, you know, everyone's everyone's worried or whatever. They're, they're the army shooting missiles at his uh, at his sleigh and, you know, they captured Santa Claus. Oh, my God, what's going to happen to him? Oogie Boogie. Oh, he's such a bad guy. And it was a suspenseful thing for me back then. Uh, and I go I, I revert back to what I said earlier today. I take it as as like these are life lessons. You know, these are things that they're, they're trying to tell us as we were younger, we didn't see, but today it's like, wow, this is like deep, you know, this is some deep meaning in these movies. And it, it spans through the whole, the whole genre from that, from that time frame of, uh, of these movies. It was, there's so much deeper meaning to them, but as kids, we just see the surface, you know, we just see the, the, the instant message of what, what they're saying. But, Later on in life, like now I see it, I'm like, wow, this is this is impressive stuff. And like we, we talk about the stats, uh, what it took to make this movie. I appreciate this movie so much more now knowing what all went into it and knowing how the whole process works. And it, it's it's just really impressive. The atmosphere today, uh, life impacting versus being scared <laughs> back then. <laughs> yeah, and I think the they talked about their influences and how they wanted these two different worlds to look because Christmas town and Halloween town look differently. Christmas town is very bright, smooth and soft and approachable. And Henry Selleck spoke of having an outrageous Dr. Seuss esque set piece. It's a lot like Whoville. Now Jim Carrey's Whoville hadn't come out yet, but I mean, uh, and that and Ron Howard's the Grinch who stole Christmas. However, the cartoon version was there which was not developed as much as Ron Howard would later go on to develop it but if you think about it Nightmare Before Christmas really kind of is an embodiment of like what Dr. Seuss's Whoville is in the old Grinch cartoon. That's very true. I never never really thought about that. And when you look at Halloween Town I'm not sure if you guys are into like the world of art or not but as an architect like this is something I'm interested in and Henry Selleck did talk about this being an influence for this there's a movement called German Expressionism. And if you're familiar with Edward Munch, the guy who did The Scream, um, like, you know, which is a very famous painting, that's German Expressionism. And that's like, but there's other people who did that, like Emil Nolde, Eric Heckel, and Edward Munch. And these guys who did these very emotional 
kinds of art in Germany, and they are just creepy. They're eerie. They're they're uh, visceral. They're scary. They're um, they convey sickness, fear, uh, and a lot of insecurity feelings and stuff like that. And so that that kind of art was what Henry Selleck was looking for to execute the hen, the Halloween Town. They wanted to rake the ground. Uh, with the clay in the ground so that it had like this movement in it and everything was uneven and there's this sense of un- unsettledness and that comes from that world of the German expressionism and that so I liked how they took those two worlds and they again this movie is about crea- clashing two worlds and so in the physical environments as an architect I'm looking at that a lot those physical environments are really conveyed and the asymmetrical crooked cockeyed spaces and perspectives of all the buildings in Halloween Town, they make you feel on edge. It's true. They do put off a very creepy aura. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, I mentioned that these things are bigger than you would think. They built these a quarter inch, sorry, a quarter inch size test practice model to plan out the set. And then they designed the whole set that was about 24 feet wide. So Halloween Town is 24 feet wide. So I mean, it's pretty large, and they had to bring that apart into different modules and pieces so that people could go in there and move one guy, put it all back together, and shoot that shot, and then go back in and repeat over and over and over again. And so they had trap doors in different parts of the town so they could get under the stage to access it. So to, when your model is so, so, so big like that, to even be able to get into it to access all these different things and to adjust it and to set it up, it, that's quite a set-building thing in itself. So again... Very few movies have this dynamic of it, so it was really interesting watching the DVD features. Well, all that went into being able to logistically even be able to do this. I can't wait to rewatch this movie now and look for these trapdoors in the snow. <laughs> and like, I'm thinking of like the scene where he's walking through Christmas Town and he's just in awe of all the great things that he's seeing. Yeah. Now I'm going to start looking for those little <laughs> those trapdoors, and it, it's something you could really take away, honestly. No, and they're. They hide them really well, so uh, I can't necessarily point out how they come apart necessarily, but uh, they made the sets so big because if you think about it, if they made them like the size of Lego men, it's really hard to carve all that detail into the claymation. So they made them larger because these characters have an amazing amount of detail in them. If you pause the movie, it's very rich. Oh, yeah, especially if you watch it on Blu-ray, it's very impressive. Obviously, they jumped the definition up pretty significantly from the original uh you know standard version but do you do you have any statistics on how big the the uh jack skellington was as a as a uh i don't have a measurement written down but having seen the documentary um they're larger than a barbie doll which is like a large action figure so they're large they're larger than that and they have like a metal framework so they it's really interesting how they made them they have like a skeleton actually like for the arms and they have pivot hinges to actually wow. move so that's a metal frame that they they have that on and then they they build out the rest of the model on them with a foam rubber and so they they inject a mold so that that's there and that's that's malleable and they can move that and then the clay goes on top of that that's a that's impressive yeah because if it's all clay it won't have enough body to right. hold the precision of the movements that they have to have so they're basically building skeletal systems flesh and then the outer skin that you know is there and to get all of that motion in their mouth and stuff like that they just had like a library of heads 
So, you know, there are over 400 Jack Skellington heads in a box, and they you again use the computer program to look at what that was word to mouth out the words, and they had like head number 382 followed by head number 262 followed by and they would they would map it all out and ahead of time and so they, they would be able to set that up and they just pop jack's head off and they put another one on there similarly sally's hair is kind of the standard piece but her face comes off and they put a different face on there for all of her mouth movements and stuff and they put the hair back on over it so that is amazing yeah it's it's really Again, when I say there's not much like this, they just don't make movies like this. I mean, CGI takes away a lot of this, just even logistically, how one does this. I was going to say, so thinking about what you just said, uh, you talk about Jack and and Sally, and then you start thinking about all the other characters that are in this movie. Yes. I'm talking about even the smallest things, the, the scene where the snake is in the house and he's eating the Christmas tree like you were talking about, that by itself is one. Then you think about the little boy that walks in. Yeah. And saw him and he's screaming and all the movements that he made, just that small inkling of a clip in that movie took God knows how long. That's very impressive. And they have to paint all of those as well. So believe it or not, there are only three sculptors on this entire movie. I hope they got paid well. (laughs) (laughs) They made over 60 characters to your point, Devin. Good Lord. And so, and furthermore, I guess in case they break or because they need, because they had all those stages going at the same time, they had to have three versions of each character. Wow. So, and then again, for Jack and Sally main characters, like I said, they have over 400 heads to pop off for all this. What was, what was the budget for this movie? It's a great question. It made money, but this is very labor intensive. It's actually got a short runtime. And when you sit there and go, this, this isn't even 90 minutes long, you start to understand why. That makes more sense, yeah. <laughs> and then also, when you watch the DVD, you see the cut scenes. They don't cut hardly anything at all because everything you cut out of there is weeks at a time. Oh my god! Just yeah, like, wasted like labor. Cut, yeah, to cut anything is just utterly painful. <laughs> Jeez. Um, it was an eighteen million dollar budget. Yeah, so it made fifty million. So they, 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 and that doesn't even count all the merchandise from Hot Topic. Oh my god. Thank you, Hot Topic, <laughs> for boosting those numbers probably at least twice over. For sure. For sure. Uh, like they said in Spaceballs, it's all about the merchandising. <laughs> yeah. Now, Brian, are there any effects or are there any like movie magic moments that you wanted to call out here? I know you pretty much summed it up with the, the various heads and the faces and how they uh, animate uh, expressions. I mean, this is this is a work of love. Yeah. And I just, it's astounding. Uh, you know, even the lighting. They have over 20 to 30 and sometimes 40 sets of lights with just real lights that they can control in the different parts of town to get all these different, you know, feelings of these casts of these green shadows and down to the detail. This movie is detail, detail, detail. So Selick lives in the details and uh, it's interesting that uh, he's there. He's the visionary who pulls over 100 people's efforts together to make sure it all comes together in a coherent Burton packaged banner. So now, Brian, let's talk about the soundtrack. This is a pretty big one here. Like overall, what what are your high points on the music here? Uh, like I said, I have my favorites on the songs. Uh, I think they're all very good. What are they? Um, I don't have any complaints, but uh, uh, 
Making Christmas, uh, Mr. Oogie Boogeyman, Kidnap the Santa Claus, uh, This is Halloween. I mean, basically about every 15 minutes, there's a song that I was singing along to when I rewatched it for this uh, podcast. Can I can I point out uh, This is Halloween, Marilyn Manson? You talked about that, the remakes earlier. Just perfect. It's perfect. I, part of me would love there to be an edition where it dubs the like the metal right. versions of these songs from Nightmare Revisited onto the movie. I know this timing would be wrong, but yeah. I just think it would be cool if somehow they could dub it out correctly, like Mystery Science Theater the right way, yes. and and let me hear these these rock versions of these songs while they're actually doing what they're doing on screen. Agreed. Yeah, now you said you were studying Danny Elfman on this, Devin. Like, what kind of interesting fun facts did you find about Elfman bringing the soundtrack to this? Oh my God, this guy's history is just impeccable. Uh, the fact that he is, I mean, when you look at the actual track listing, it's just, it's, it's just, it should just say Danny Elfman. And that's it, because it's all him, everything. Uh, Sally's song is obviously Catherine O'Hara, Poor Jack, Danny Elfman, uh, Kidnapped the Santa Claus. It's actually Paul Rubens, uh, Catherine O'Hare, and Danny Elfman. They all got involved in that one because they're all obviously characters. Uh, and like I said, Danny Elfman did play all of Jack's uh, singing parts of this movie. So I guess Chris Sarandon can't sing well enough. Or I guess Danny Elfman's just awesome at it. Maybe it's <laughs> he's he's pretty good as far as his. Uh, you know, he he has. He has done a lot, uh, he, mainly mainly in the music department for a lot of films, uh, big films, actually. He was a composer in Men in Black. Uh, he was in the music department for Corpse Bride. Uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, he was the composer in that movie. Uh, he also hmm. played in Oompa Roompa. You might not want to mention that one. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, let the, let's leave that one off. Just a quick tidbit on that movie. Uh, he played in Oompa Loompa uh, as a voiceover and got zero credit in the credits for it. It's probably better that way. It wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> um, he has an extremely uh, decorated history, uh, mostly in the music departments on a lot of these movies. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas was obviously his biggest hit, most in-depth on that. But uh, Dumbo, uh, a few, uh, the new Grinch, the, the re-release Grinch, that was a 2018 remake. Uh, he was in that as a composer. Uh, he was in the Fifty Shades series uh, as a composer. Justice League. He was in the Justice League as a composer. He did a lot of these uh, well, major, major films. Yeah, Batman, he's all Batman over the place. is another Tim Burton effort as well. Yeah, Goosebumps, the 2015 Goosebumps. Uh, Avengers Age of Ultron, he was in that as well for as a composer. He's a busy man. Very, very. He, he did a lot of great stuff. Now, as far as the, the songs uh, that were used in Nightmare Before Christmas, he did a phenomenal job. I mean, the, the, the songs today, like, <laughs> if they didn't remake them and Marilyn Manson didn't take This Is Halloween and do it, you could turn that song on by, you know, himself, by, by Danny Elfman and play it. And it's still, it's a, it's a great song. They do. I mean, and people people do enjoy it. And, you know, Danny Elfman amazingly said that Nightmare Before Christmas is, there's 10 songs on it. And he says it's one of the easiest jobs he's ever had because he just related to Jack Skellington. Like, he said, like, this was just... This just fit me. And so right. it wasn't a stretch to try and find the character or the sound. And it all came together for him. So, again, uh, Danny Elfman must be from that planet and that neighborhood. And that. <laughs> Patrick Stewart did the original introduction for the movie, which uh, can be heard on the film soundtrack as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, we didn't mention him earlier. It was actually going to be Vincent Price. But, yeah, his wife had unfortunately died and his he was in decline himself in health and... And uh, when he gave it a go, it just didn't, 
it didn't uh, have the Vincent Priceness that they wanted. He didn't sound like himself, and he wasn't able to give it a go. So uh, Patrick Stewart ended up taking over that that early introductory uh, wow. role there. So yeah, uh, you guys were talking about covers. This is not on the Nightmare Revisited, but uh, Fallout Boy does a great cover of what's this out there. Wow. And, okay. That's, and Panic um, at the Disco does a great cover of This Is Halloween. I love Panic at the Disco. Yeah. I think they're the, the lead singer of Panic at the Disco is so underrated. He his voice is impeccable. Their their careers always parallel each other. I just it's it's funny those they 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 overlap and and uh, and uh, so when uh, one does a Nightmare Before Christmas cover, sure enough, the other one must do it. <laughs> and then another fun reference is Jack and Sally are mentioned in the song "I Miss You" by Blink One Eighty Two. Uh, you know, I've heard that before. I've heard that before. I knew Jack and Sally were characters in the song, but I did not realize that was Jack Skellington and Sally. So um, that was a fun uh, connection that I made when I was studying this. Uh, Danny Alfman is actually married, uh, just a quick tidbit, uh, married to Bridget Fonda, and they have a child together. I did not know that. Yes. He was also 40 years old when they made uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. So the relation to Jack Skellington probably hit a little bit you know, harder for him because he was an adult. <laughs> he was a full grown adult when that happened. So interesting. And you know what? There's a, there's a, there's a musical artist, Danny Elfman, like from a new wave band perspective that came on. I was watching some eighties music videos one day and then all of a sudden this performance came on. It was interesting. And it said by Danny Elfman and wow. it, it was just him being a music artist, like out in front of her in the eighties. <laughs> so uh, to add to the, all that composer side of things. So, Wow. Yeah. Did you, Devin, did you say you had a favorite musical moment? Was it This Is Halloween as well? I would, yeah, I'd have to say This Is Halloween. It's definitely the most uh, catchy of them. And it's one that, I mean, you don't have to know the movie to know that song. I, I, I like What's This. That's, that's uh, that, um, again, a lot of the humor comes in there of just like, there's no dead bodies anywhere here. And, no. you know, like, and they're kissing. That's weird. That was the high point. That was like the happy time. Yeah. Like you, like you were saying, though, I definitely think that in terms of a cover, the Marilyn Manson, This is Halloween, is probably my favorite. But I think in movie, Making Christmas is my favorite. Mm-hmm. So you guys want to hand out some awards? Let's do it. MVP of Nightmare Before Christmas, Devin. My own personal? I gotta say... I gotta say Danny Elfman. Yeah, that, that was mine say- as well. Yeah, that was, that's a great choice. Uh, you know, the music is what I think makes this so lovable. And also I will, uh, uh, honorary mention Ken page. Mm. Boogie boogie. Yeah. I think he did a phenomenal job too. Lots of character. Um, he's another guy you won't forget. You know, it's easy to forget some of the characters in that movie. Oogie boogie was a pinnacle, uh, point in that movie for sure. Yeah. Brian, who's your MVP? I went with the claymators, the people who actually spent the time making 300 heads and, you know, all these expressions and wireframes. And I, there's, there's so much heart in that, that I, you know, you can't have the movie without it. The movie isn't special without it. And I just think that they're the, they're the soul of it. Wonderful. Yeah. And best supporting actor, so to speak, um, voice actor in this case, but, uh, Devin. Best supporting actor, uh, Catherine O'Hara. Okay, that's she's a great Sally. Kevin, Catherine O'Hara is is I mean, a, 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 a Jacqueline of all trades. I feel like she has a wide spectrum of what she's capable of, and uh, she really does a great job in this one for sure. 
Brian, who's your best supporting? I went William Hickey with this one. Ah, Dr. Clint Kil- Kilberg. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I just, I love the evil scientist. The whole, it, it, maybe it was because I, I got some nuances from from him and then that whole part with him and Sally this time around. But yeah, I, I just really enjoyed him. William Hickey's got this amazingly distinct voice. I just, uh, he's, he's gravelly and weird and eccentric. And if you don't know who William Hickey is, this is my pick as well, by the way, Brian. Uh, he's Uncle Lewis from Christmas Vacation. You know, like, yeah. They want you to say the blessing. Mm. <laughs> that was um, perfect. <laughs> um, yeah. Hidden gem, Devin. Uh, a hidden gem. Uh, I'd have to say Paul Rubens. I did not know Pee Wee Herman was uh, a part of this uh, production until now. And amazing. You know, and, you know, Tim Burton did Pee Wee's Big Adventure, the first movie there. So it's uh, Tim Burton has his crew and. Paul Rubens yes. comes back from that as well. So good, good call out there. Brian, hidden gem. My hidden gem was, uh, this is the first time I read Tim Burton's poem that led to this movie. And my hidden gem is, uh, telling everybody to go out and check that out. Yeah. There's a great version by Christopher Lee reading it hmm. out there. Yeah. Excellent. YouTube that my hidden gem is going to be the underappreciated, uh, Glenn Shaddix, the mayor. I love him. He's, a. Uh, the, the, you know, his wavery voice and the, the, the head that has to turn. I love that character. And I like that the politician is two-faced. Yes. Glenn Shaddix's voice is just so good on that one. So uh, wonderful character, wonderful voice work. See, that was one thing that 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 whole thing about not understanding as a kid, the two-faced politician thing. That is, you can you can read that easily today. It's like, yep, it's perfect. Recast. If you had to recast somebody, it's hard to do sometimes, Devin. But who would you recast and who would you put in their place? Oh, geez. Um, that's tough. Think about it. We'll come back to you, okay? Okay. Brian, if you had to recast somebody and put somebody in their place, who would it be? I, I can't uh, on this one. I, I don't know how it would change. And uh, I just really would just want to keep the sanctity of this whole. Wow. You got to be brave, Brian. All right. I'm going after, I'm going after Sir Patrick Stewart himself. And I'm going to I'm going to take a blow or all the Trekkies are going to have to suffer this blow because I'm replacing him with Star Wars as Mark Hamill. Because he's a great voice. He's a great voice actor. Hmm. He is. A, he is a great voice. Talent. And I, I, I want a creepier intro than Patrick Stewart delivers there. So and I think Mark Hamill can give it to us. So uh, uh, score one Star Wars score Star Trek zero. Devin, you, you get anything? I'm thinking, okay, so okay. this is kind of a long shot. I, I know that, that Bobcat. Goldthwait, yeah. Yeah, I feel like he would be a nice addition to this movie just because of his voice. Great choice. You know what I mean? I don't know where I'd really stick him in this, but I feel like he would have fit perfectly in this cast somewhere. All right, moving along. Best shot, Devin. <sighs> Best shot, uh, obviously, when he's at the mountain, as the mountain's curling over. Oh, or the hill, I should say. Yeah, it's it's the icon of the movie. It's what's on the poster. It's a great choice. Yes. Brian, best shot. Jack, uh, Jack with the Christmas lights in his eyes. I just think that's always been an iconic shot for me in this movie. That's another. Yeah, it's a great one. I love Jack going in front of the moon on the sled, like when he's driving the sled. Oh, so, yeah. With, yeah. Or best scene, Devin. I, I have to say when he enters Christmas Town, that joyous feeling of like, What's this? You know, when the whole what's this song kicks in and the, the it, it gave me a really nice like it's almost like a heartwarming moment in that movie 
where there's a lot of despair and, and, you know, ugly and dark. But when he's like tearing up through the town and he's sliding down all the buildings and, and sliding through the snow and everything, he's jumping into the snowman and he's just, I, I love that scene. It's lively. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, Brian, what's your best scene? The uh, kidnap the Santa Claus number, like not not the the song itself, but just the the choreography of them prepping to go kid, kidnap Santa Claus, I thought was so much fun. Wow, okay, that's one of the meaner parts of the movie on this one. Uh, you're you're mean spirited on this one. Wow. <laughs> um, I'm gonna go with when Jack's lamenting in the cemetery. I, as a kid, I I would have never picked this, but as an adult coming back to it, I I dig the melancholy tones of I'm just not into this anymore. So okay. that sad song that's playing and stuff of, I just, that, that, that hits the tone of this for me. Are you talking about in the beginning of the movie? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yep. He's, uh, he, he and Zero are in the cemetery and Sally's following behind kind of like, what's, what's going on? Why is he so sad? Yes, I agree. It's all, uh, I also like the post uh, sleigh shoot down when he's trying to figure out why they're all mad at him. Yeah. Yeah. In the graveyard. That was a good scene too. Yeah. Now change one thing, Devin, and you got to change what just one thing. I would have liked. I mean, I would like to say I'd like to see it for longer, <laughs> I'd like a longer production. A longer movie that, that's allowed. Knowing knowing the uh, what all goes into it, I can understand why it was the length that it was. And I would also like to see an entire saga of Jack Skellington walking into each door in the trees and seeing what Easter's like, <laughs> mm. <laughs> what St. Patrick's Day town is like. Brian, change one thing. That's hands down my my one thing. I I wanted to see St. Patrick's Land so much. Okay, yeah. Brian, I think that's getting to be a standard answer for you. Make it into a universe. <laughs> really could have. I mean, it was a, it could have easily segued this into a saga of uh, Nightmare Befores. And, uh, my, change one yeah. thing, my change one thing is going to just be a little bit more at the end. I just, I feel like this movie wraps up quite abruptly. It, it's a happy ending. Jack and Sally are together, but I, I just feel like, I don't know. I just, there's this degree of, it cuts hard and, uh, I like it, but it's, uh, that, that ending is abrupt. Agreed. Best quote, Devin. When he's standing in the hall explaining Christmas, it's not a quote, but it's kind of like a song where he's explaining the whole thing with Christmas town. That segment, I feel like it's probably my favorite quote of the movie but it's not really quote. it's like a song yeah sorry it's a little bit of a cheat there but it's honestly one of my favorite parts brian what's your best quote nice work bone daddy (laughs) i like that one that's greg proofs doing that my best quote is going to be jack skellington uh singing he says my dearest friend if you don't mind i'd like to join you by your side where we can gaze into the stars and then sally finishes his sentence and says and sit together now and forever for it's plain as anyone can see, we're simply meant to be. And then the movie closes abruptly. <laughs> um, yes. Now, uh, it is that time to give this movie a rating on a five-star scale. Brian, what would you give this movie? I'm giving this one a five. I, it's, it's just, it's, it's close to perfect. Awesome. And Devin, what do you give this movie? I'm going to have to second that. I'm going to go with five stars. I really, it, it, it's got so much meaning. It's got so much time and effort into it. You can't deny the fact that this movie is a uh, next level for its time. Yeah. I, I, I give a five on this one as well. It, it, if for nothing else, it is a marvel of how they made it. And again, there's nothing else like that. And, and, and the experience benefits from that as well. So 
Oh, we don't pick a movie for next time. Next time, we're going to have a year-end special where we're going to rank all of our movies that we covered this year on Retro Movie Roundtable and uh, give out some year-end superlatives as well. That'll be fun. Remember all the Lords, Ladies, and Nights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We want to invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And check out our Patreon page if you want to contribute to the show. Devin, thanks so much. You were a great guest. Thank you guys so much for having me. Appreciate it all. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian. He visited the house of Susie and Dave. They got a Gumby and Pokey from the grave. Then onto the home of little Jane Neiman. She got a baby doll possessed by a demon. A monstrous train with the tentacle tracks. A ghoulish puppet wielding an axe. A man-eating plant disguised as a wreath. And a vampire teddy bear with very sharp teeth. <laughs>